he ao te rangi ka uhuia, mā te huruhuru te manu ka mai. Just as the clouds cover the sky, so a bird must have feathers to fly with. E koe mā e koroma ki nā pākeke ki te hunga rangatahi me nā pēpi. He mihi tēnei ki a koutou katoa ko marae rakrakua hau. Ke te whakarongo mai koutou ki te hōtaka nei ko te ahi kā i te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. I'm Maria Rakraku and you're with Te Ahika, offering up an explanation of things from a Māori perspective here on Radio New Zealand National. Her contribution to Natoi Māori, the creative Māori world, was legendary and Aotearoa became, well, a little less legendary when we farewelled 89-year-old queer Diggeres Te Kanoa who died late last week. We've got some archival recordings from the 1970s where we learn more about her heritage as part of the Hetit whānau, renowned for weaving. Weaving was considered a God-given gift and what you did with it was to respect it and keep it within your family and teach it to your next of kin. Um, It was normally thought that if you taught anybody... It, 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 it meant that you didn't respect it, and um, in the old days, if you did that, you would lose your knowledge. Keeping with the 1970s, get this, Pākehā Michael King gained access into the Māori world, and in the process, with Barry Barclay and John O'Shea, created New Zealand television history with their series, Tangata Whenua. Lawrence Whareiro talks to that. I don't believe that John O'Shea... Michael King or Barry Barclay ever believed that these things should only be trotted out and seen once. Any filmmaker, every filmmaker, gets into the business because it's about showing their product again and again and again. Even if it is criticised or um, lambasted, the point of the, 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 my point here being that um, if, if the documentary or programme has created conversation, then it's done its job. During the day, Nasi Tufare Toa Muatata Maira is a Māori reference librarian at the Christchurch Library. But at night, she taps away as an award-winning blogger on the website stuff.co.nz. Competition blog idol uh, is akin to a New Zealand idol, but <laughs> not nearly as glamorous. <laughs> um, and basically, yeah, it was a, basically a writing competition, a blogging competition, which I think is something a bit new to New Zealand anyway. So it, they whittled it down to 10 contestants, um, and we spent... Basically, we would blog every day, and the person with the lowest stats or page views for each day would then get kicked off the island, so to speak, uh, until it got down to three, and then those three of us blogged for another week, and I came out victorious. Justin finds out more coming up a little later in Teahika. Koira na kopapa moti naipo. That's what's in store for no ma for this week's Teahika. Kaite pakarongo mai na Teahika. Kotemia tuatahi. If there's a royal family when it comes to weaving, it's the hetet fano of Nati Kunihaku, Nati Maniaputo. In 1977, former Spectrum presenter Owen Owen visited with Rangi Māori Hitet and Digeris Te Kanoa at their marae. The Korowai Makers 
Mrs. Rangi Maria Hittet of Tekuiti is well known for the exquisite workmanship of the korowai she makes, the feathered cloaks worn on ceremonial occasions. She's received an MBE for her work and an Arts Council Fellowship. And she's passed her skill on to her daughter, Digger Takanawa. But the craft requires more than skill. Preparing the flax demands a considerable amount of sheer physical work and endless patience. This is reflected in Rangi Maria's output. In some 30 years of work, she has produced 14 korowai. In this program, mother and daughter talk to Alwyn Owen about their background and their work. And Mahi Portiki introduces the program. This is your grandfather's cloak. It was his father before him, and his father before that again. Oh, it was made a long time ago. A chief must have a away. Listen, Mokobuna, I'll tell you a story. Once there was a chief called Tamaterangi, and he had a wife who couldn't weave, so he had no away. So, when he was asked to speak on the marae, he would not stand up. He stayed seated. And he said, He ao te rangi ka uhuia, ma te huruhuru te manu ka mai. Just as the clouds cover the sky, so a bird must have feathers to fly with. Now, look at this away. Oh, they did their work well in those days. See the fineness of the weave and the colours of the tarnacle, black from the hino, brown from the tarnakaha, and this yellow. See that? That's from the rolico. Feel the feathers. Oh, that's right. Stroke them. They're from the kaka. Plenty kaka then, and kereru, and kiwi. Good feathers for the korowai then. Perhaps I'll make your korowai one day, Mokopuna. But pheasant feathers? Pakeha feathers, eh? Where did I learn? You want to know where I learned? Come, I'll show you. Help me up the hill to the Wadipuni. I'll show you where the kuya taught me. Oh, such a lot of things. How to make korowai and whariki and sing waya. <laughs> Now, when was this built, Digger? 1896. Rangi has this changed much since your early days? Well, the, this, this old house, is, as far as I can remember, it's been like this, except in the floor. In the first stages, it just had a, an earth floor to it. What about heating back in those days? Well, they used to have a fire in the middle of a, of this old house, and that used to keep the people warm. Just a, a little depression in the earth, Rangamari. Um, uh, yes, they uh, made a sort of a, a hollow in the in the earth, and then they lit big fires, and they brought the embers in, and that answered the purpose. What did you have for lighting in uh, in those days in the uh, house here? Can you remember? Yes, they used to have a bowl with lard in it 
and they make, made a wick and put it in and light it. And this was all they had for, for lights? That's, mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. That's in the very early part. And then, of course, they got candles later, uh, later on. Kerosene lamps. Now, tell me about some of the, the, the portraits you have on the, the walls here. That's Tallahoo. Oh, yes. Did you remember quite well? Yes, I remember him quite well. He knew quite a lot of Maori medicines and things like that. Of course, he's been gone for a long, long time now. And he used to talk to us. He used to talk about all things and talk, and we'd fall asleep. <laughs> and then he'd wake up and sing out to us. And then he'd say, Oh, all gone to sleep. A friend of mine was telling me that she remembers evenings spent in, in a Farepuni, and she said, People seem to have the ability, you would think they were fast asleep, and a speaker would make some point, and suddenly they'd jump up and they'd be wide awake and they'd have heard every word that was going on. <laughs> Is this right? Uh, I think so, but I don't think it happened to me because I fell, fell asleep when this old man talked that long that you just went off to sleep. And then he, he was quite really disappointed. And he used to say, oh, you'll never learn anything. What sort of things uh, did you learn, Rangamare? The old kuyas used to do their korowais, granny rongo in uh, Hinewai. The old men used to talk tell stories, Oh yes, I can remember that. I can remember them sitting up all night and talking, different things. And yeah. what would the what would the women be doing while this was going on? Oh well, some of them would be singing waiata and talking, and perhaps making mats, kits. Or even Korowais. Tell me a little bit about your, your parents, Rangamare, your mother and father. Well, my mother and my father was a Pākehā. My mother was half-caste. And as far as I can remember about my mother, and she told me herself, she was taken away to Lemon Point by a missionary called Snagenberg. And that's where she had a bit of schooling. And she was uh, <coughs> quite capable of speaking English. And uh, that's what I can remember of her. And my father was a surveyor. And I didn't see very much of him because he used to go away at times for all for weeks. Now, your mother was a young woman during the Waikato Land Wars, is this right? Yes. Yes, she told me about her being in the uh, Maori War at Wairakau. Wairakau. digger. Yes. She uh, was, took part in the war. She even carried a gun at one stage. And uh, their tribe kept together. That's Ngāti Kinohaku. She actually had to go into hiding yes. at one of the, mm. uh, the battles, yes. I believe, is this right? Yes, she went into hiding. Uh, uh, I remember being told she went into hiding and they hid in the bushes and they waited for the bugles, uh, a signal or something, 
and um, that would be the the ceasefire. It's the ceasefire, mm. and then after a while they heard thudding, feet running, and she knew that they were her own people because they were barefooted. So she joined up with them. Uh, mm, mm. Yes, and because uh, then she met the other people of her tribe, and they wended their back way back here. She had a, a child with her on that occasion, yes, is that right? Yes, yes, she had a child with she her. She had a child and she had also had another lady with her, yes. an elderly woman. Mm. And uh, her baby that she was carrying uh, started to cry and this old lady got sort of, oh, I must get away from her because the uh, ones were looking for them might find find them. So this old lady went away and she was left alone. And the only way to stop the baby crying was to feed it. Oh, she, so yes. she gave the baby the breast yes. and let it quiet. Yes. It. yes. Mm. Now your father, um, Charles Hurst House, he was the surveyor, wasn't he? Yes, he was a surveyor. Now he found himself in a spot of bother here too, didn't he, in the King Country? Yes, he did, because they captured him and another chap with him, and of course they uh, tied him up in a little house at, at a little park called Tikumi. And then some people came to the rescue, as far as I can remember, by the name of Tererenga. And then, however, they were let loose and then there was, they made peace. And that is how I got my name, Rangimaria. Which means? Means peace. <laughs> now, what about um, Digga, your daughter's name here? How in turn did Digga get her name? <laughs> oh, well, that come later, later years. My husband went to the First World War and when they were over there, they used to call them the diggers. And then when he came back, <laughs> then I uh, had, uh, had my daughter, and that was in his mind. He said when I was carrying, he said he would call, call him digger. She's supposed to be a boy. <laughs> You've got problems with Bora here. I'll show you my flax now. And maybe you carry some down the hill for Nanny, eh? Wood flax, you know, dear, is not easy to find. And when you have it, you must respect it. Look after it. Such a lot of things to know about flax. How to cut the leaves so that the bushes will stay strong. And what kind to use for the pupu or the the aho threads in the Korowai, or whariki. See how nice and long they are? This is where we get our flax from, because they're nice and long. Has this uh, variety got a name, a Maori name? Yes, um, we have here uh, Kohunga and Taiore. Now, which, which are the two? Which is Kohunga and which is Taiore? Well, the Kohunga is the one that's uh, more upright, and the droopy ones are the Taiore. What are the two varieties used for, Digger? Well, the kohunga is used mainly for the fenus, that's the warp 
uh, threads and the tauri for the ahos, the weaving thread, because they've got a finer thread than the kohunga. Now the warp thread is the long thread which runs yeah. from the top to the bottom. Yes, the, uh, and the, the aho is the uh, weft, the weaving threads, the fine ones. Actually, we use them for pupils as well. It's more or less an all-purpose flax. You can make kits or hats or fariki even, although we have the romor too for fariki. Now, the fariki is the, the flax The floor mat, yes, yes, that's right, yes, yes. I think I might get a knife and take me a few long ones. Now we take our flax down. And I'll show you how I'm harrow and mirror it, eh? How to strip all the green away and leave the mucca, the fibre. And then we mirror it, roll it into threads. Come on, come along, Mokopuna. Now, what are you doing at the moment, Digger? Stripping, sizing the, um, the warp threads from, from the flax. Taking strips off oh, about an inch, uh, a bit less than an inch in width. Yes, oh, it's less, uh, it's just under a half inch. Just under a half say. inch? Yes. Mm. Now, you've got a pair of, oh, a pair of dividers there. Yes, yes. And uh, that gives you an even width. You just run yes. them along the, the length of the That's flex. That's right. Mm. From the flex blade, you take the sides and the back rib off um, because the sides don't have much fibre in and, of course, neither does the back rib. So you're getting one, two, four uh, strips from the Yes, um, the average flax, flax blade you get four strips out of. And you were uh, uh, fusking in a tin and yes, uh, a shell there, now what's that for? a decent shell to, so she can have it to uh, harrow with or uh, getting the uh, fibre out of the flax. Now these are muscle shells? Mm, yes. And then you get your bundle and about the middle and then you put a incision. Now you're cutting through from the back of the leaf here yeah, by the looks of things. On the, on the dull side, side of the flax. Mm. Yes. yes. And about halfway down the flax blade. And you've got to be very careful how you cut your flax because if you cut it too deep you won't get any fibre, any you don't cut uh, enough, you might get too much green on the fibre side. This is where your experience comes, judging the, yes. the depth of the cut uh, thing in Maria. Then after that, then you you separate the fibre away from the green flax. Now you have a muscle shell in your right hand. Yes. Your fingers are underneath. <laughs> and you... You seem to just draw the, the, the flax between the shell and your fingers. Yes. And that just strips off the green on either side. Yes. You make it look very easy. Well, I suppose it's, no, it should happen that way because I've been at it for quite a few years. And that just leaves a white ribbon of fibres, and this is your mucca. Uh, yes. You call it thing uh, there. Top and tail. A thick end to thin end. This is to give you an even um, yes, an even, an even thread. Yeah. And I suppose you want to see how it's done in the mirror there. Eh? You have mm. to mirror them, do you? Mm. I've got my pantyhose on like something. 
Yeah, what's the shooting? And this is the middle. What else would you call it? Plying. Now, will you tell me exactly what you're doing? Rolling it along the um, above the knee. You, um, it, they roll together. Then, as you, your hand gets towards the e end of your knee, you lighten your touch, and as soon as they meet, then it's brought backward. So that you've got two threads. Yes. You keep them about an yes. inch or so apart, bigger um, yes. as you are rolling them on your on your leg. Yes. And then as you approach your knee, yes. they yes. come together. You run your hand back, and they ply and form a single That's thread. That's right. Yes. How many of these do you have to do when you're making a, a, a corner way? About seven hundred. Seven hundred. Yeah, between All six and seven hundred, depending on the size of the cloak you want. And how long does it take to prepare six hundred of these? Then? Well, I, I expect an average. If you can do uh, between sixty and a hundred per day, I think you're doing pretty well. That so it'd means be a minimum, almost of ten e days. Uh, yes, just to get that part ready. Yes. Mm. And then, of course, after that, you wash them, you dry them, and then they're ready for the putting into plaits, ready to be beaten. That's only one part of it. And if you're using the thrums, or the hookah hookah, as we call them... Yeah, these are the, the black threads, you there, see. Yeah, that hang, hang down hang on down the clothes. Mm -hmm. Well, you go more or less go through the same thing all over again, only those are twisted far tighter. And uh, perhaps for an average korowa, you would need about um, 250 yes, to 300. Yes. Yes. Maria, you have your 600 to, to 700 warp threads then prepared, as we've seen. They're stripped like this. You then have to, what? To wash Pound them. them. Wash them. Wash them first, then dry them, then plait them in... Uh, about a hundred in a plait. Then you beat them. You you drop them in cold water and you beat it till it's damp dry. After you beat beaten it for a long while, it it gets dry. All the water's out of it. You beat them with what a stone? Do you? Uh, you beat them with a with a stone. Digger, these stones. Where do they come from? Mister Tuke Tere gave me those. They belong to his grandmother. The the small but they're stone. They're very old. Yes. They're very old. Mm. The small stone has been shaped, hasn't it? Yes, uh, yes. That is in fact called a patumuka. Uh, patumuka. Uh, yes. And you put them in water, cold water, then you beat, and they splash, splash, splash. That's very heavy. That stone. Yes. You beat it like that. Till it's damp dry after you've done that. When it's damp dry, you unroll it and you shake it. Then you re you repeat it, you put it in water again and you go through the same process. It's, it's a big, big job. Oh, well, I didn't show you my mud. Maybe that's just as well, eh? I've got a mud hole down by the creek. That's to make my hino dye black. Eh? It's a good black, the hino. But the bark is hard to get now. And so is the tarnica, her bark for the brown. 
It's a difficult one, that brown. Now, come here, come here. And I'll tell you how I get the colours for the tarnacle and the hookah hookah. You dye your, your fibre, your mucha. Uh, the black we dye with uh, hino bark, which is pounded and boiled. And then you steep your fibre into that. Leave it overnight, take it out, dry it. And after that, you take it to the mud. And you leave it in the mud for about an hour, uh, a night. And then you take it out and wash it. You wash and wash and wash. Get all the dirt out. And that turns it black. After it comes out of the hino, it's, it's just a color of strong tea, you know, that color. But after it comes out of the mud, well, it's really black. And then they, you wash it and wash it. This is a special type of mud, is it, uh, Ringy Mud? Yes, teeth. Teeth is a special kind of mud. In fact, the uh, diggers got, got a mud right at the back door here. By the creek, we've been using that for many years. And it's very good. We have tried a commercial dye for dyeing black, but there's a vast difference doesn't look right, doesn't even feel right for that matter. That's your black. What about your other colours? Uh, the other colour is Tanaka. Tanaka. Tanaka is very tricky. Tricky to do. I find it very tricky. Sometimes you get a good... and sometimes there's no good. And no. Tanaka has got, it's a lot of work. You get it. And you do the same, you pound it and boil it and steep your fibre in. <coughs> Take it out and you're supposed to uh, put it in hot ashes. And it's the hot ashes that turns it brown. It's quite a rich brown, isn't it? Yes. But the raureko is very easy to do. You just get the bark, boil it and steep your fibre in. And you've got the yellow. That's your golden colour there. Mm. That's, that's the only colours we use, and the white, of course. Natural. You see this? This is where we start the Kuraway. This is the first line of the Tarnikor. Everything begins from here. And when I start that, not even you are allowed in the room. Nobody, nobody at all must look over my shoulder. Now listen, Mokobona, I'll tell you why this first line is so important. How do you start? You've got your six or seven hundred warp threads. Yes. And uh, what do you do? For the tiny go, you find the middle of it. So that your design is, is balanced, um, yes. you, you mean? Yes, balanced. Mm. And your tanako is, um, is a strip across the bottom of the korowai. Yes. Well, you can... I have seen some that's got some up the side of the coralway. You can have it up the top as far as you, if you wish to. And this is uh, set out on a frame, is it? Just as it is hanging here now, just like that. You can start the tiny go here. You stretch it out the same as this, and you do your first row. So all you've got is a, a couple of drawing pins on the yeah, uh, board and a stand. Yeah, that's all. And a stand, and your pattern will. 
it's up to you to make out your own pattern. <laughs> now, tell me about setting out this this first line of Tanico because it's uh, it's very important, I believe. Well, as far as I know, they call that the Ahotapu, meaning meaning you have got to have your pattern in your mind and you've got to sit till you finish that first row, that sacred row. But when you finish that, well, you're right. You can sit down any time you can break it. You shouldn't break it at all, that first row. But Taniko, I find, is very fascinating with me. When I start a Taniko, after that first row, I always like to see how my pattern turns out, you know? So you keep on going? Yes. It's uh, sort of fascinating. What have you been doing while we were looking at this tanaka? Um, uh, I've been trying to mirror some, get a few ahos together. This is the uh, weft threads, and uh, you take them from the hank of muka, and the strands have to be counted for this, for weaving, so we used four all together. That means two and two, and they go through the same process of being top and tailed, so as you get a thick end and thin end and an even thickness right through. They make a very fine thread, don't they? Yeah. Yes, I suppose they'd be about the thickness of a 20-gram crochet cotton. And this is the, the weft, the horizontal mm, thread in your, mm. in your corduroy. Yes. Tell me how the, the, the feathers are fastened into the weave here, Rangimari. I'll just stick them on so we can see. See, that's the feather that's already been uh, glued together. Now, There's two in that bunch, two pheasant feathers. Two pheasant feathers, yes, and how are they two. joined together, uh, Reggie Mario? By uh, soaping the down part, the, the stem. Um, the stem, the shank. Then this is how you place it on your warp on your fenue as we call it then you put it in like that so that two of your weft threads go between yeah. the other two yes. it in place. and then you turn this up and then you fasten it with your aho then you're supposed to cut that off of course two weft threads on one side are passed mm. between two on the other side mm -hmm. That locks your feather in place. That's it. And then it's turned over mm. and the process repeated. Yes, repeated over and over and over again. And it'll take the best part of two hours. If I had put all feathers there, it'll take more than two hours to get to that end. To get to do one line? Yes. It is quite a tremendous job. Oh, a lot of friends, when it's shooting season, they usually bring the feathers down to me. Especially Pakehas too. <laughs> what about the um, kiwi feather, as you have done? Kiwi feathers, they, it's the same. Friends give it some they've had for years. And what few I've had, it's all from friends. And for kaka feathers, well, that's very rare too. And they, they, they were given by friends. That's the, the bush parrot, uh, yeah, Mary. Yes. But I don't expect to get any more now, I don't think. Now, that's due for another feather. You see, Mokupuna? 
so much time, so much work to make a korowai. You start off with the green flecks and feathers and bark and mud for the dyes. So simple, so it seems. Yet, six months later, perhaps, you have this. The flax is soft and white as a cloud. The hooker-hooker is black as night. And the feathers as close as they were on the breast of the kaka. And a king could wear it. No, no, don't do that. You shouldn't try to put it on. There are only two ways to wear a kurawai. One is to be a chief or a person of high mana. And the other, Mokopuna, is to die. Because at the Tangihana we cover the coffin with a kurawai so that the body is kept warm until burial. And at death, well, it's nice to think that every man has some chiefly qualities in him. But perhaps the time will come when you will stand on the marae and wear one, Mokopura. Perhaps the time will come. That was The Korowai Makers, a program about Rangi Maria Hetet and her daughter, Digga Takanawa. The program was narrated by Mahi Portiki and recorded and produced by Alwyn Owen. A Spectrum documentary. Koirana kōrero te rakuia rangi marie hitet, te faia a digeris te kanoa, nā reira i te whānau o te kuia nei, he mihi aroha ki te whānau pani. What hasn't Lawrence Farerau done in the New Zealand TV industry? Fitting then, he comments on one of the greats, Barry Barclay. I met with Farero during the recent retrospective of Barclay's work at the New Zealand International Film Festival, where the significance of the groundbreaking work, Tangata Whenua, kicked off our kōrero. The series was shot in uh, the early 70s, was screened on television in 1975. covers a number of areas... Um, one, they're all beautiful, and it's, it, it's hard for me to sort of speak about one without speaking about the others. The Spirits and Times will teach a fantastic and beautiful story um, about Eva, or, uh, um, with Eva Rickard involved in it, and talking about um, uh, Hedipo, um, a fantastic and beautiful story, well shot. Um, then there's Waikato where it's talking about um, points of identity for Waikato people. Actual fa- in actual fact, starts down here in Wellington at the uh, Kōkiri Marae over in Pitone. Um And then goes on to discover what um, the Kingitanga is and what it means to the Waikato people and what and indeed what it is for Waikato to belong to Waikato and be Waikato. Uh, the great trees, you know, talking to the likes of uh, Eriwera Manuera uh, from um, Te Teko and Ngātiawa, um, and the importance of identity uh, to his maunga, Putawaki. Um, uh, there's uh, Ringatū uh, Prophets, uh, shot in Tūhoi, um, where the themes are again about talking about the importance of Ringatū faith to the Tūhoi people and how they become or how they were charged with the responsibility of maintaining that, that particular um, hahi. Um, you know, and then um, 
there's also a series that was shot in, in Parihaka, but due to a number of misunderstandings between production and um, at the request of the, of the Parihaka trustees, uh, that's actually been withdrawn from um, uh, and, and until they're able to sort that the issues that that, that brought that about uh, about sorting that out. The carving cries again about identity and um, the like, urban drift. You know, there's so many different um, things and levels that are discovered and um, discussed in that um, series that are still absolutely relevant and um, timely even now. How relevant do you think the Tangata Whenua series is to Aotearoa New Zealand? Today. Um, extremely. The series was shot in, 19, in the early 1970s, but the themes that they chose and they spoke about are so relevant nowadays. Um, you know, they talk about identity, they talk about um, a need for us to retain and maintain our tikanga. So, you know, they were shot uh, 35 years ago. Um, the stories are still relevant. And when, when we've been uh, screening them during the film festival, the consistent comeback is we need to see these again on television. Uh, and that's not from Māori. That's an actual fact coming from, to my surprise, the Blue Rinse Brigade. You know, your um, uh, white and middle-class um, uh, 70, 80-year-olds who are saying this. And it, 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 if they're saying it, then we as Māori should be saying it loud and um, quite loudly as well. And I understand the issues that are behind it that, that, that might make that difficult. It's the durations that um, Barry chose when it came to uh, filming or, or, or putting the documentaries together. Uh, and, you know, you look at the modern schedules that television stations have, they, I don't think at the moment, are able to accommodate that unless they break their schedule. And... Um, you know, I'd, I'd argue for that to occur. I think the uh, the people that he spoke to, the messages that come through, are all so powerful um, that it's a must that at some stage in the very near future we need to access those um, images and those films again through the medium of television. I mean, people have often said that, you know, Tangata Whenua was documenting people that lived alongside Pākehā, but Pākehā had no idea. That Māori, in actual fact, had these values and this way of thinking. Oh, and that, that's how they were, you know, that there, were, there was Māori lived like that. You know, when it goes to Tuhoi, when it heads into Raglan. I mean, it was, it was like a window into a world that many Pākehā didn't know existed. But it doesn't, for me, scream out that Māori is jumping up and down and saying, hey, look, this is us, we live a completely different lifestyle, we eat the same food, and we uh, dress similarly, but I behave in a different way. It was, the film just captured that, and I think that's what the fantastic and the power of those sorts of films are. Um, you know, it, 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 there's no excuses, and it's, it, it, it's all of the films, you know, had such an impact on me. I remember when they, um, when they ran, and I, I, I remember thinking to myself, yeah, that's, my, that's the way my grandparents behave, and that's, uh, just because I was living in the city, it didn't take me away uh, from that connection to them and the way that they behaved. Neither do I think that it was a validation of Māori being Māori in the way that we act and respond. It was simply observational. It just was. It just, just was. was. Just was, just is. Presented by Pākehā historian Michael King and produced by John O'Shea, Tangata Whenua was directed by Nazi upper Barry Barclay. Barclay utilised a particular camera style that is now associated with his volume of work and is also the title of a documentary made by Graham Tuckett, The Camera on the Shore. Lawrence Farero continues.
His camera style was always to, to be the observer and not the owner of the images. So he'd often, he'd often have his uh, camera set 50 to 60 feet away from the subjects that he, was, that he was filming. And that was so there wasn't a sense that the camera was in your face or you know, that you're pushing it into a coma to his face, which is uh, culturally, you, you wouldn't really want to do that. Nowadays it's a little bit different, I think, because we've become comfortable with the technology and we, we've owned part of the technology and the skill to tell story, uh, that, we've, that we've invited the camera a little closer to the conversation now. But um, you know, Barry's style of setting it back and having a good backdrop so you can actually see the setting of where the conversation is occurring as well. Uh, you know, those are some of the more powerful things that worked in favour of his film style. And so do you think that was determined by his Māoriness? I think he was informed by it. I do know that Barry struggled with it, with being Māori, because he'd, he didn't have those tangible connections that, 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 that a lot of us enjoy. He, in actual fact, was, um, you know, found it quite difficult to come to terms with that. But once he did, he didn't let that get in the way of what he was, of what he was about and what he was wanting to do. And his subject matter informed him a lot as well about uh, why he should take on a particular story and, and uh, do it in a particular way. And that's not just with his um, documentary making, of course, and let's not forget that he got in, he's also part of the, um, the collaboration from Ngāti with Tamapuata and We Kuki Ka, you know, and, and they've all passed beyond the veil now. God bless them all. Um, but, you know, he didn't shy away from, from that. In actual fact, I think... I think that somewhere along the way he must have had an epiphany where he sort of came about or came to the fact that he didn't need to struggle with being Māori, that he just was, and so that was fine. Okay, so, but when you look at his volume of works, I mean, when would that have occurred? Because, I mean, he was dealing with subject matter that was revolutionary in a way, eh? I mean, you look at The Neglected Miracle, uh, you look at Te Rua. When would that have occurred? Because it Why? seemed like he was dealing with stuff like this all the time. I, I think I'm prepared to say that it would happen, would, it, it would needed to have happened around the time that he was shooting the Tangata Whenua series. Because... It, it, it's so revealing in itself, the, um, the the subject matter, that it would be very difficult not to rise and fill that void that could be created from dealing simply with that subject matter. So um, what it was or how it occurred, I don't know. But I do know that, um, that, that, that for a time he struggled with that. Uh, and I think it's once he gave up on struggling with it that he became comfortable with it. And, and that it maybe just, it came a lot easier. And it just it, it just was then. You know, there's no struggle there. Do you think that he's appreciated in Aotearoa, in the film community? Or, you know, is it, is it a bit like Merata, Merata Mita? You know, with Merata, she's had to go overseas almost, eh? And, I mean, do you think he was more of an outsider in terms of the industry? I think he swam in a different direction. Um, and um, is he appreciated by the well, not just the film community, but also the film audiences. A hard one for me, I think, to, to define that, because I can only come from my point of view. For me, uh, he's, he's the, one of the icons out there, and one of the, uh, you know, he set so many benchmarks. I don't know that he was fully appreciated, either by the industry or by audiences, because of the body of work that he did and subject matter he chose and the way he went about doing them as well.
I mean, you're right, the, the neglected miracle, 25 years old now, and he was talking about um, genetic modification and corporates coming in and taking whole uh, crops and just to get up, just for one particle of its genome, uh, only to then sell the, uh, the new material back to the people that they took them from. You know, that sort, that sort of thinking was sort of way beyond its, so far ahead of its time that it's not funny. But having said that, it's, it's also absolutely of its time. Um, Barry's subject matter, uh, even for um, the Tongue of the Whenua series, Terua, the issues that he was dealing with there, uh, Ngati, Feathers of Peace, Kaipara Affair, you know, all those sorts of things. They're almost stuff that people were wanting to push to the side and not take on. But Ringo's Barry, you know, he just waltzes straight on in there and, uh, and tackles the issues. And I think he does some, I think his observational style. Um, is, is, is one of the tricks that, act, that help make his work so successful. Um, it, yeah, it doesn't need to provide the answers. And the other, the other point that I'd, I'd like to make would be that I don't believe that John O'Shea, Michael King or Barry Barclay ever believed that these things should only be trotted out and seen once. Any filmmaker, every filmmaker gets into the business because it's about showing their product again and again and again. Even if it is criticised or um, lambasted, the point of the, 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 my point here being that um, if, if the documentary or programme has created a conversation, then it's done its job. Uh, Lawrence Farero no Napuhi. Gone are the days where libraries were dusty, old, and no talking zones. Now they're like technological havens with organic coffee and free wireless. Like Superman, Muatata Maira no Tufarito has two aliases. There's the library work she does during the day at Christchurch Library, and then the one she assumes at night where she's a blogger, someone who writes a regular weblog or diary journal for the internet, which she does for stuff.co.nz. When Justine was in Christchurch last year, she met with Moata and in the process learned about how the internet has really opened up a whole new world. So my name's Moata Tamaira and I'm the Māori Reference Librarian for Christchurch City Libraries. So tell us about your, your job here and what, what it entails. I'm the Māori Reference Librarian for Christchurch City Libraries. There's only one person in that position. So um, of all the librarians that work across our network of uh, about 19 libraries we've got, um, I'm the only one that specialises in Māori information and Māori resources. I have a responsibility for that. Um, I'm based here at the Central Library in the Ngāpōnmu Māori Centre, which is where we are now. Um, so that's where most of uh, Christchurch City Library's Māori resources are kept. So I have, I sort of take care of those um, and, you know, keep my eyes out for new resources and things that I think would be great for our customers. Uh, and I try and communicate with the other librarians around the network so that they, they're able to maintain their skills in dealing with... Um, reference inquiries of a, that deal with te ao Māori and also Māori customers. So, that's, yeah, that's sort of what my role is. And so when we talk about um, Māori 
references. What, what, what are we ta- are we talking about? Books and resources and information. Yeah, well, it's, it encompasses everything really. So obviously, being a library, you would think books, but you know, it, it's broader than that now. So we have books, um, AV resources, so that includes you know, a CD collection. Mm. Always keeping my eyes open for new DVDs and videos because those are very popular. Um, but also internet resources. So we try and create resources on our own website. So I have a lot to do with that, thinking of new things that we could incorporate into our website. If there are questions that come up a lot, could we, instead of making somebody come into the library, could we make a page on our website that answers that question or or gathers together a group of resources that might help people who are doing particular projects or have a particular interest? Um, So it's the physical resources... It's also this physical space, keeping it nice, trying to incorporate, um, as you see, we've got tukutuku panels around the place yeah. and, and Māori artwork and trying to make it um, Māori friendly, I suppose, yeah. <laughs> for want of a better term, <laughs> as well as um, trying to make the information more accessible and that's putting things on the internet and, and seeking out things that are on t- the internet that are useful and, and maybe putting a link to those from our website. And how did you come to be in, in this role? Right, well, Firehanita. Fire <laughs> oh, well, firstly, there's Firehanita, who she is the um, team leader for Māori Services, and um, she's very, very good at picking out the people um, in this organisation who she thinks has potential. And she basically did bully me into it. Because <laughs> when I started in this role, I didn't have any library qualification. I do now. Mm. I do have a Master's in Library and Information Studies. Um, but I was unqualified, and she said, I think you should try and do this. And I said, oh, no. I said, oh, no. It's, ooh, I'm not important enough. I'm not knowledgeable <laughs> enough in it. You know, I was just a little bit um, scared about it. And she, basically, she forced me into it. My background is in, um, in the humanities. So I went to university, and I did um, sort of majored in linguistics. I did a little bit of Māori language and a bit of... Um, history, that kind of thing, very broad, not, mm. it wasn't very focused, you know, I didn't really know what, what I wanted to do, and lots of librarians are like that, there are lots of BAs, people with BAs working in libraries ended up doing it. Um, from a career point of view, I didn't, ha- I'd never really had a full-on proper job before I came to work at the library, but done a lot of things with customers, so working in hospitality, working in pubs, did my time at the Wadi Whare during wow. university, so worked for I. four years, <laughs> four years at the Wadi Whare, so you get it's, it's, that customer service skills are really important when you work in libraries. It's all about um, people interaction, yeah, kanohi with... ki kanohi. Mm. So you've got to, um, yeah, you've really got to have the people skills down. So, yeah, in terms of my working life, it's always been about, you know, in retail and, and that kind of thing and, and working in pubs when I was on my OE, which has stood me a very good stead. Were you born and bred in Christchurch? Um, I was born in Timaru, and um, but raised in Christchurch, so I'm fully, fully Cantab, even though you know um, my father is from up north. Let's talk about this other little quirky thing that you <laughs> done a, about a year ago. Is the um, www.stuff.co.nz website? You won, you won the blog, the blogger competition. Uh, that's right. Um, Stuff, which is predominantly a news website, ran a competition. Um, where you just had to like write 100 words on something, anything, um, and basically it was a competition blog idol, uh, as akin to, or 
New Zealand Idol, but <laughs> not nearly as glamorous. <laughs> um, and basically, yeah, it was a, basically a writing competition, a blogging competition, which I think was something a bit new to New Zealand anyway. So it, they whittled it down to 10 contestants, um, and we spent... Basically, we would blog every day, and the person with the lowest stats or page views for each day would then get kicked off the island, so to speak, uh, until it got down to three, and then those three of us blogged for another week, and I came out victorious. And so that's my other job. So I work full-time in the library, and then of an evening I go home, and I I sit at my little laptop, and I, I write things, and then the next day it's up on the internet, and people read it, and they post comments. And it's really interesting, and it's a really great creative outlet and I like that I can do both things so that it just sort of um, I think they complement each other nicely So next time you're on the stuff.co.in website you can look at your right hand corner and you may see Moata's Kanohitia I, I am, um, sometimes yeah uh, actually one time I was at, at work here in the library and we have free com- computers that people can use the internet and I looked over and I saw somebody reading my blog, I saw my little face, it's got this little blue background and looking out from a computer and someone was reading it and I didn't know what to do, I was like where do I look, oh I'll just pretend I haven't seen it was a little bit embarrassing um, but yes, uh, if you look under blogs, I'm there. Also under lifestyle. <laughs> so we're in your main office area. Yes, so this is up on the second floor. Um, and it's, it's a great, nicely appointed wee corner. We've got uh, lots and lots of windows looking out on the river. Lovely comfy couches. Um, so this is where yeah, the bulk of the Māori resources and are And there's kept. a Te Reo Māori language section. There is. Um, and we've got all the main iwi histories that are published. Um, um, the books on Māori art are very popular. Um, and as well as myths and legends, those are quite popular as, as well. Um, plus we have uh, we have CDs, so it's been a Stui Teka, Michael Black, and our local... Um, a local lady, um, Ariana, Ariana Tikal, mm. um, who's yeah, I just spotted one of her new CDs <laughs> on the rack there. I have to have a listen to that. And no doubt, there's a lot of um, Naitahu information here as well. As much as we can get our hands on, mm. yeah, absolutely. So, um, we have a Naitahu collection um, just over in the corner over there, uh, which is based around the, the Naitahu evidence that we got gifted from the to do with the claim. Really, really great resource, yeah. And you sound like you, you love your job. I do. It is very interesting. There's, I don't know if there are any other jobs where you literally learn something new every day, constantly stimulated, and I'm just the kind of person who likes asking questions and finding out what the answers are, so it really suits my disposition, I think. And you've got a wealth of information. And Are you an avid reader? Um, you know, people always expect that librarians are avid readers, and I, I mean, I, as a child, I did read a lot. Um, I don't seem to have as much time for it now as, yeah. as I used to, but I'm an avid reader. I'm also an avid movie watcher, TV mm. watcher, music <laughs> listener, so it's all, it's all part and parcel. But can I just put a plug in? We're always on the lookout for more Māori librarians because there's just not enough of us. There isn't. So um, if, if you, you know, if you like answering questions and you've got an inquisitive mind, then you should definitely consider it as a career because it's pretty cool. What are the challenges of the job? What are, what are some things that make you go, oh? Some of it is just the nature of the information. It's, it, Māori information can be quite challenging to find um, answers for people. Part of that's down to 
there are less resources produced. For instance, there, there's not that much produced in te reo, so if you've got a customer who's a te reo speaker and, and wants to like read a lot of, um, lot of fiction or a lot of um, recreational reading just to keep their te reo mm. going, um, it's, we, we have a very, very small selection. That's not because we don't um, think that it's important to have those resources. The fact of the matter is that there's a small market for it and therefore publishers don't produce yeah. as much of it and we can only buy what's available exactly. so so that's a challenge um, also because I'm only one person um, I work with a really great team of yeah. people who are very very supportive and libraries in general are, are, are really um, embracing of different cultures and I, I like to call it lovely liberal library land lovely <laughs> liberal library land oh, try saying that 20 times <laughs> yeah no don't um, um, yeah, so everybody's very supportive, but I'm only one person, so there's only so much that I can cover. And um, so it is a challenge to try and um, try and feed the knowledge that I do have through to the rest of my colleagues so that they can then pass that on to their customers. Kia ora moata. And this year she won the Best Blogger Award at the Qantas Media Awards. For more information, go to our website, radionz.co.nz forward slash tahika. We've got some links posted there. I'm Maraia Rakraku and you're listening to Te Ahika. A number of hui have been doing the rounds of Aotearoa lately and next week the consultation round on what flag should represent Māori hits Wellington. Justin will be reporting on that issue, that take, next week. And I'm with one of our more seasoned Māori actors, Nancy Brunning, at the screening of her latest film, The Strength of Water. You'll hear more of that kōrero next week's show. Aneira Amahi Pōtiki with this week's Whakatauki as recorded in the 1970s. He ao te rangi ka uhuia, mā te huruhuru te manu ka mai. Just as the clouds cover the sky, so a bird must have feathers to fly with. Born in 1925, Mahi Pōtiki became the first female Māori radio announcer in the late 1940s. Not that long ago, eh? That's just over 60 years ago. At our website, radionz.co.nz forward slash ahika, there's some more information about him. Mahi Pōtiki died a few weeks ago. She was 84. Moi mai e koe. He mihi tēnei ki nā kai kōrero i tēnei wiki. Kia Lawrence Whareirau rātou ko Moatata Maira ki nā rā wikiwiki mihini nā mihi. Hoki mai anoa tērā wiki e te iwi, mauri ora tātou katoa.